0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier.
1: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I am joined here today by my co-host, Chris Jennings. And today we have another exciting episode for you. Uh, It's gonna be a a highly educational episode. We're gonna pay tribute in some way to the hunters and the active role that they play in collecting data that through the years has provided the foundation for much of what we know about waterfowl population ecology. Uh, And quite frankly, it continues to fuel many of the decisions around waterfowl management and conservation in North America. And so specifically, we're going to be talking about waterfowl hunters as citizen scientists and the important role that we all play in that regard. To help us in this discussion, we're going to be welcoming in a special guest, Dr. Mark Lindbergh, professor of wildlife ecology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks Institute of Arctic Biology, Mark, welcome into the show and I promise that'll be the last time I refer to you as Dr. Lindbergh per our earlier conversation. I
2: appreciate that.
1: Yeah, so thanks for joining us here. We uh, we, we always want to start off the show when we have some special guests by giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself, uh, your personal insights, professional interest, and, uh, and kind of where we are, where you are today and um, help us understand a little bit about uh, where you come from.
2: Yeah, sure. I, I think it, it important. It's very important when talking to hunters that um, first established that um, many of us are also hunters too that are also biologists. And sure enough, I started hunting when I was ten. I grew up in Pennsylvania. My dad uh, was a big time deer hunter, and he um, he encouraged me, and um, I I got interested very early in life, and that interest just continued to grow through my life. And um, my roots again were in deer hunting, but uh, my passion is definitely in upland bird hunting and do a fair amount of waterfowl hunting as well so hopefully hunters appreciate as i'm talking to them that I, I i could appreciate their perspective and uh have have a similar one as they do uh that interest in in uh hunting and wildlife and outdoors grew into a career as well i um i i uh, started with the Pennsylvania Game Commission in 1984 as a technician. It's um I I was working on a project on Canada geese and and that um led into some graduate studies. Um did my master's degree on Canada geese at Cornell University in the uh gosh, 19 late 1980s. Um and that led to a PhD in in uh, Alaska on black brant. Um, from there I started down my career path. I um, actually had a job at Ducks Unlimited, and in 2001, uh, we returned to Alaska, and I, I took a position, as you described, as a faculty member, Professor of Wildlife Ecology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where I've been ever since.
1: I always try to do a little bit of research, additional research, on the guests that we're going to have, and uh, so I went to your webpage, and you know, you're, you're an incredibly accomplished waterfowl ecologist. Uh, When I read your your bio, your research interest, uh, you're interested in things such as population ecology, banding analyses, harvest management, decision analysis. You're one of those smart people that uh that that I always look up to. You bring a lot of quantitative skills to these discussions, and that's it's uh, always really valuable. It's sometimes intimidating for for me to get in these conversations, but uh, but I think you're going to be a fantastic part of this of this show. So uh, happy to have you on this, and appreciate your time because I know you're certainly a busy you're certainly a busy busy person.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, you you're right about traveling around for this job. Early in my career, someone pointed out to me, "Hey, if you study." waterfowl, they can take you to some really neat places. And i just like to point out that has definitely been the case and, and one of the reasons I initially got interested.
1: And Mark, you also have, I believe, a podcast of your own that you started here recently, uh, something I believe is called the Hunting Science Podcast. Do I have that right? Yeah,
2: thanks. Thanks for the plug. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I have been um, very active and, I guess, successful in, in science in in the form of communicating to other scientists. Um, But one of the things I was frustrated with, I guess, late in my career, is that we weren't getting this science to hunters enough, at least, in my opinion. And that was the motivation behind starting this podcast, as you said, called Hunting Science. And um, our goal is to make hunters aware of the science of hunting. And there's quite a bit of it, some we'll talk about today, but uh, there's other podcasts there that dive into uh, um, other topics as well.
1: We talk about that often, uh, Chris and Clay and I, when we're kind of uh, mapping out the the potential for this particular podcast. And there is so much really interesting information that, that feeds the waterfowl management enterprise. And and I know a lot of our, our hunters and conservation supporters will be interested in that. And I think your philosophy on the hunting podcast, the hunting science podcast of yours is sort of similar to ours. The more that we can educate and share this information with our, with our supporters, I think the, the greater appreciation and understanding of that resource they, they have. And so, uh, that's pretty cool that you've headed down that, that road.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Mark, I'm going to have to look into that, into your podcast, um, You know, just when this topic came up, I thought, you know, kind of the citizen science is how waterfowl hunters kind of lead the way with this. You know, one thing to kind of uh, expand on, even from what Mike said, is I live every day inside the waterfowl hunting community, working with the magazine, uh, creating content online, social media. Um, But every time we do one of these podcasts, I manage to pick up some tidbit of information from the science side of things, something that I didn't know. Uh, something that I know that our listeners will definitely learn from. So I do appreciate you coming on. And, and, you know, this is going to be a great topic, the citizen scientist.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So to that topic, uh, that's uh, let's get right into it here. Uh, when, we, when we use the term citizen scientist, I think that term has probably come of age in the last 10 years. At least that's my sense of it. Uh, Mark, help us understand what we're actually talking about when we use that term.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. That term is relatively new, but the idea of someone collecting information for us, data, scientific data for us is rather old. And and that is um, my definition, someone who volunteers to collect information to help us make um, management decisions, conservation decisions. And I guess I would add to that definition that they may not know they're doing that, um, so it's either knowingly or unknowingly, um, they're helping us uh, gather information that we need to make the best decisions we possibly can.
1: Whenever I was thinking about this this episode over the past few days and in, in my mind coming up with examples of citizen scientists, uh, it, I think we're going to mention that waterfowl hunters, hunters in general, are some of the first citizen scientists that that we've ever had. But there's also another group of citizen scientists out there that I I don't know how how common or how active they are anymore. But when I was growing up, my grandfather would be a one of these uh, local weather reporters, the local weather station would reach out to these weather, to, to citizens in in towns around the, the broadcast location. And I got a great kick out of having my granddad be the one to call in and report the weather from his little town. And so the fact that I have a grandfather that collected data and reported it is probably gonna come as a shock and surprise to no one that knows me and the fact that I'm, I'm into data a little bit. So that was sort of a neat way of looking back and um, a personal example that, that I thought about. Mark, what are some other uh, specific examples of citizen science as we might uh, as we might see in the conservation field?
2: Yeah, your, your point about the weather data is a good one. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, hunters have been doing this for quite some time. I guess maybe the most obvious way to some hunters they do this is through things like a bag check station. Um, you stop, you show who's ever checking what you may have harvested, and they might look at the age, the sex of the animal, or some other characteristics. So that's citizen scientist data um, that you're providing to help them make management decisions about those animals. I know this is the case most other places, but in Alaska, every year after a season closes, we need to file hunt reports, whether we harvested an animal or not. Where did we hunt? How many days did we hunt? How did we get to where we hunted um things like that and it, it again helps them uh agencies uh make management decisions for those species and there's more modern farms starting to crop up here and there too uh ebird um is one app that you can get on your phone that allows you to report observations of birds from around the world that's shared with biologists and scientists and other other birders and hunters for that matter so um there's definitely a lot of forms in which hunters uh, citizens can contribute
0: Be the first to know when ducks are on the move. Sign up for DU's waterfowl migration email alerts and receive ongoing in-depth updates on the latest habitat conditions, weather changes, and hunting reports for your flyway. Visit ducks.org slash migration alerts.
3: You know, I know hunters, you know, maybe someone forgets their license and they have to call in. And I've, I've actually been on the phone, you know, with people or been near them when, you know, they're filling out their license online and telling or it's an automated system, and they're just pressing no, 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 and you know and I'm like, hey man, you can't do that, you know. And they're like, why? I'm just trying to get through yeah. it. And I'm like, because it's an important, you know, it's an important aspect. It's something, you know, HIP is something that every single hunter in the U.S. is participating in now, and that's a uh, one great program. It's something for people to keep in mind when they start getting the questions about did you hunt coots, rails, or gallon right. you right. know. And then you know, just make sure you, you're following along with that, and that's a, a good reminder for hunters that they are participating in this science?
2: Yeah, definitely. The Harvest Information Program is a a very obvious one. Um, About a million waterfowl hunters a year are reporting their harvest from the previous year. That's a million data points provided by citizen scientists. And that information goes into decisions about uh, future harvest regulations. So, it's important not only to provide that information, but do it in a reliable manner.
1: I would imagine as some people are listening to this they're they're expecting us to get into the details of what the harvest information program is and how that data is used because I mean, there's a tremendous misunderstanding of how that data is is used. A lot of people think that it's estimating a harvest for for the current year, but that's not true at all. And so I don't want to go I don't want to veer off into that otherwise. Uh, we'll have to be pulled out of the out of the ditch here on this particular podcast, but we will we will get back to that at some point in the future. Um, what are some other uh, examples, Mark, of of citizen science uh, d- data collection responsibilities that waterfowl hunters have? Yeah, so
2: some hunters, not all, participate in what is called, uh, not attractively, the parts collection survey. Um, maybe a better name, the wing survey. That's been going on for about forty years, and Here, hunters uh, send in their wings of harvested uh, waterfowl, and biologists gather every year at what's called the wing bee. And um, at that wing bee, they they look at those wings, and from uh, the patterns of feathers and colors, they can tell the age and the sex of the birds. Um, And by knowing the age and sex, they can determine things like production rates for that year so if there's more young birds in the wing bees than adult birds that looks like a good production year whereas reverse might indicate that it wasn't a very good production year so that's a neat way to do it and it's really fun to look at those wings one of my first jobs was to work bag check stations looking at uh, wings of uh, birds that hunters had harvested and it's pretty fascinating that you can determine that much information just from the color patterns and the wings. Um, the other one that people might be a little more familiar with is reporting the bands of uh, lake bandit birds they may harvest. So those who have been around for a while know that the metal lake bands on waterfowl used to have just something simple that said, advise Washington DC and And not many people knew what to do with those bands. In fact, about 35% of the people reported those bands when that information existed. Um, But in more recent decades, we've moved to a phone reporting system with 800 numbers. And also now we're using websites to allow hunters to report information on the birds they've uh, harvested, banded birds they've harvested. And that results in about a hundred thousand reports per year and about 75% of the hunters that get a band now report that information. So we've increased the volume of data.
3: I'm just curious, did the, uh, when, when the, uh, submitting process went online and did, did you guys see like a slight jump in the percentage of birds reported? I mean, just the convenience of it, especially that, you know, this day and age. Um, you know, even when you're hunting, you're not without your phone. Did 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 you see um, any increase in that go up just because it makes it
2: so easy? Yeah, it, it was almost immediate increase. In fact, shortly after they they implemented the one eight hundred number that doesn't exist anymore. But um, when they implemented, I so happened to be at bird banning lab in Washington D.C. and they had a bank of phones there that were uh, people were uh, answering and um while i was there during the hunting season people were calling in from their blind hey i just shot this pintail with this number and and it was an immediate um input of information and then they got immediate feedback on that bird as well expenses um of having people answer those phones were probably the most Important reason why they decided to just go to a more passive approach of having people entered on the website, but nonetheless, the um, it's still a a system that encourages people to hunt or report, I should say. And again, reporting rates back in the day when um, this goes back to 1920s, by the way, when we just had advised Washington D.C. about 35% of the people actually reported, and now about 75% do so. That's been a huge improvement in the information we get from those and is consistent, I guess, with sort of my philosophy is we should empower hunters with knowledge that'll make them better citizen scientists. And and um I think that case study is a, a good example of where we see those improvements in the information. Um just another statistic that I like to throw out, but since nineteen sixty. Hunters have reported almost four million bands
3: wow that's impressive now you mentioned the twenty so so in in that that data set it's assumed that twenty five percent of the people who shoot a banded bird do not
2: report it is that right yeah and that's determined through things like reward band studies i don't know if anybody has had to uh, been fortunate enough to shoot a bird that has a monetary value on its band but the the idea there is that occasionally we put those type of bands out and the assumption is that at some dollar value, whatever that is, everyone that shoots it, a bird with that dollar value will report it. And from there we can estimate how many report it when there is no dollar value. Um and uh so that's that's how we've determined how reporting rates, which they're called, have changed through time. But yeah, there's still some 25% of the people that choose not to report those bans based on based on the information
1: we have. Are those reporting rates calculated every year?
2: No, it's it's not done every year and it's 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 done uh, occasionally as needed is how I would say it. I I don't think anything's been done for a few years now.
1: But certainly when there's a change, when there's a change in reporting method, that's when it's, it becomes really important.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah, and you know, I think we're just starting to Go down this path, if you will, of empowering hunters with this type of knowledge. I'm kind of curious if we get the word out via podcasts or other ways. Um, I wonder if reporting rates will increase. Um, you know, people, again, I my guess is that some of that 25% of the people that don't report just don't understand um, the value of that information. And that if we can tell them.
1: They don't understand how it's right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it just leads to better decisions. It's, it's, it's more reliable information. The more information we have, the more reliable it is. So not reporting that information creates uncertainty and in the decisions we make. And again, I think I'm of the opinion that if hunters understood that more of them would report their bands because I think almost everyone wants us to have reliable information.
1: I want to go back just a little bit. You mentioned something about the 1-800 bands. I know those bands are no longer used, but if someone recovers a bird that has 1-800 band on it, is that number still functional?
2: Uh, The number, I believe, just gets you to a recording that tells you to report via the website. I'm pretty sure that's where it goes now. No, So it's not functional in the sense you can't uh, report your information via that route, but it tells you how to do it.
1: But if you, but you can still report those one eight hundred bands online. Yeah, you you can
2: still do that online for sure. Have you
1: shot one? You know, it's been a while. I think I did. I think I shot one of the early ones. Uh, that would have been back when the fun the, the number was functional.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, so um, I
3: shot a band one time in Indiana when I was younger and got excited, picked it up. I was like, yeah, my first band. I was probably 16, 17 years old. And, and looked at the band, and it had uh, some guy's names. Guy, I won't mention his name just in case he's still around. But it had his name carved in it very loosely <laughs> with a phone number. And I called it, and I'm sure he was uh, some knucklehead in Brazil, Indiana that was banding birds, yeah. probably illegally without a permit. That was the only, that's the only band, duck band I've ever killed. So
1: we'll have to get in our, into our, our banding stories. Later, Absolutely, the, the birds we've shot with banded birds. I actually ha- I have I have a couple of interesting stories on that. I hope we've shared with our listeners um, their role in collecting this information. I, I think we're going to have you back and talk a little bit more about how some of this data is used and, uh, and speak a little bit more deliberately about the importance of reporting the data reliably and collecting that data reliably. And uh, I, We want folks to realize that they play a critical role. They have for decades, and they will continue to play a role, a critical role, in the data that is collected and used to manage our waterfowl harvest on an annual basis. And uh, we want to share this information with people. We want them to understand how that information is used. We want them to understand the importance of it. And we appreciate you coming on and helping us tell this story. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think, uh, Chris, any any final words here?
3: Uh, everyone out there listening, report your bands.
1: Report your bands, absolutely. It's important. Mark, any final words on this on uh, on this particular episode?
2: Just just this thought, I guess. The way I try to present this to hunters, if if you were the decision maker, if the hunter was the person setting the harvest regulations, what information would you like to have to do that? And you know, I think everyone would say the most and the most reliable information I can get. And I think if you view it from that perspective, then that Will really motivate you to want to provide this information in a reliable manner, so hopefully people will think that way about it it's It's not like we're trying to use this information against you it's everyone involved wants to make the best des- decisions possible, and that's only possible with reliable data
1: that's right Mark we again we again thank you for your time uh thank you for joining us all the way from Fairbanks and uh I thank my co-host Chris Jennings for for joining uh, joining us here. I want to also thank at this time our producer Clay Baird, who's going to make us all sound uh, sound great. And thanks to each of you, each of our listeners, for a very important part of this entire enterprise. Thank you for your contribution to the science. Thank you for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. And we'll catch you on the next episode. For your band.